All right, we need to pray. Uh, Lord, we, um, I say we thank you for your word, but I want to acknowledge there are times where we hear it and don't understand it, uh, where um, we're puzzled by it, maybe even when it kind of uh, offends us. So it's hard to, you know, say those words, thanks be to God. But so we pray uh, that in the preaching of the word, uh, which is attended by your spirit, which uh, illuminates hearts that are otherwise darkened, which softens hearts that are hardened to your will, which lack understanding, Lord, that you would um, show us that uh, the entirety of your counsel is good news. Uh, Lord, that there is uh, in this word a power greater than even that which it took to form creation, that by it uh, you show us Jesus, uh, that by it you deepen conviction, you affect repentance, you bring about faith, and you bring newness of life. So, Lord, would we receive it gladly, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you are at work through the preaching of it and the reading of it, the hearing of it, so that we would leave here as those well-fed, as those rejoicing, as those even eager to tell our neighbors there is good news. Would you give us grace in this time? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, uh, last week we looked at the last part of Romans 12 uh, with a focus on our relationships with others, and, and we're still talking about relationships, um, but this time with a focus on our relationship with what Paul calls in this passage the governing authorities, uh, that is to say the state, the government, um, and in that we're still contending with what it looks like to Live life in view of God's mercies, as he said at the beginning of chapter 12. And, you know, I'm aware that this is the start of the sermon. Um, and, you know, I have to wonder, and I suspect, that the mere mention, you know, of the government and our relationship to it, you know, may have already exhausted you. Um, you know, I mean, Lord have mercy, right? We're on the cusp of another election. Um, you know, and, and I'm beginning to think we don't even have election cycles anymore. We just live in the churn of everything political. We are awash in it. You know, not long ago, I bought a cup of coffee, and someone said, you understand where you've bought this coffee from, right? And I'm like, it's just a cup of coffee. <laughs> like, you know, but apparently there were all sorts of political reasons why I should not be, you know, drinking this cup of coffee. It's exhausting. So here you are in church, and maybe you're here hoping to get a break from all that, hoping that whatever's going on with government and politics and all the rest, we can set aside for a little while and get a little rest. Well, not so fast. Um, so, you know, to get into this, I think, I think it might be helpful to, to introduce a couple of important qualifiers. The first thing to say is Paul is not giving, has not written a treatise on, you know, church and state relations. Um, he's not petitioning the Roman authorities in Romans 13. He is not leading a protest. He is not pinning a, const a Christian constitution. He's not even proposing, you know, the creation of an alternative society. Uh, he is still writing this little church in Rome. He's still talking about what it looks like to live in right relationships, this time again with, with the government, with the governing authorities. 
And the first thing he has to to say about that relationship is that Christians should be subject to those in authority. And he gives three reasons why they ought to do that. The first reason is because it's right. He explains that it's right because there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That is to say that whatever regime you or I happen to live under isn't the product of a successful human rebellion against his will. It is instead, Paul wants us to know, the result of his will. And because that's true, because all governments are in fact instituted by the sovereign God, it is right to respect them. It's right to submit to them. Now, having said that, it carries a pretty important implication, and that means that those who are in positions of authority aren't bigger than God. They aren't a rival to God. They aren't more powerful than God. You know, a great example I'm going to bring up a little later, but a great example of this in the Bible was the, was the person of Daniel, who knew something about living under a government that imagined itself to be all of those things, to rival God, to be more powerful, to be more bigger than God. And Daniel responded to that by saying, you know, that you occupy this position because God gives it to anyone he wishes. That's why you have the power you have. So the first thing is that it's right. Secondly, we should be subject to governing authorities because it's reasonable. Paul gets into this in verses 3 and 4 where he asks, would you like to be free of fear of the person in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Paul is is scratching out an important truth here that governing authorities, authorities bear a weighty responsibility of keeping society in order so that people can live together peaceably. Uh, They are called to administer laws in which there are benefits for obedience and there are punishments for disobedience. And without those dual incentives for reward in doing right and retribution for wrong, society would be nothing more than, you know, the collective chaos of individuals pursuing their own interests, right? So it's reasonable to submit to their authority because that contributes to the common good. Paul Paul actually explains that further in verse 4 when he says that the person entrusted with governmental authority is God's servant for your good because they don't bear the sword for nothing. Um, When Paul talks about the sword, he's introducing a metaphor there that's basically the civic power to punish wrongdoing of all kinds, a whole range of things, whether it's a parking ticket or getting put into prison, right? And that's a good thing that that is entrusted to governing authorities. It's a good thing that that each individual is not left to bear their own sword, right? And, And, you know, we don't even have to imagine the chaos that ensues when authority devolves to the individual in that way who supposes themselves to be, you know, judge, jury, and executioner, right? That, that is, a, that's a tragic deal, and you don't have to read more than a week of news stories to see when that happens, it almost always goes badly, right? So that's an excellent reason for submission to government, governmental authority. We submit to it so that the system can work toward the general welfare of all, otherwise social order is impossible. Thirdly, Paul says we're called to submit because it's respectful. It's right, it's reasonable, it's respectful, and he implies this in verses 6 and 7, where he talks about giving what's owed. 
to those who serve in government, not only in taxes, but in honor, because they attend to these weighty matters, right? Um, so not only is revenue given to those whom revenue is owed, but respect to those who, to whom respect is owed. Honor to those who deserve honor. You know, I remember years ago, a friend of mine, uh, this was before the fall of uh, the wall in Berlin, and a friend of mine uh, told me about a visit he had in Czechoslovakia. And at the time, the ambassador to Czechoslovakia was Shirley Temple Black, the former child actor Shirley Temple. And he said, you know, they were getting ready, and they were going to get an audience to the embassy, and they were going to meet the ambassador. And he said, you know, they're getting ready at the hotel, and they were all just cracking on Shirley Temple Black. You know, they're singing the good ship lollipop. They think this is going to be hilarious until, you know, they enter the embassy grounds, right? Until they pass the Marine Guard and enter the grand office of the ambassador to the, of the United States. Then it became a situation where honor was owed to the one to whom honor was, honor was given to the one to whom honor was owed. Paul's getting at that. This is a person managing weighty matters, right? Now, having said all that, okay, in, in being subject to the governing authorities, and because it's right, because it's reasonable, because it's respectful, I don't want to pretend that any of this submission stuff is going down well with any of you. <laughs> you know, if I was making a short list of, you know, the most hated concepts, the most hated terms of 21st century Americans, making the top five would be submission, right? Nobody likes that idea of submitting to anything. I mean, maybe, you know, on our best day, we could say, well, I like the idea of submitting to my best personal impulses, you know. I like submitting to a healthy diet, regular exercise. But what are you supposed to do? How are you, how are you supposed to how am I supposed to submit to the governing authorities when we all know good and well that the governing authorities are far from perfect? They're full of problems. In fact, they're full, of, you know, they're the source of a lot of my misery. Wherever you are on the political spectrum, you know, we can all agree on that, right? I mean, maybe this is the key to national unity. Griping about the government. Whether, you know, whether you've come up against governmental incompetence, whether you've seen that, you know, you're concerned about its corruption, its bias, its abuse of power, you know, all of which are real, all of which have been costly, in some cases at the cost of certain people's lives. You might think, you know, if the government's getting anything from me, it's my suspicion, but not my submission. Now, making it even more challenging is Paul actually doubles down on this, and he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, all that can, get, can be really hard for us to get our heads around. Now, one way we might wriggle out of it is to say, well, what, you know, it's contextual. Paul's writing a church, and, you know, maybe, maybe this church is living under, you know, governmental authority that's a little easier to submit to than what we've got to deal with. Except when you remember that this church lived under the authority of the Roman Empire which was not only the furthest thing from friendly to the church, but it had no concept of personal rights and was wholly dedicated and quite energetic about wiping the church from the face of the earth. What do we do with that? So, so you know, whatever you think of that, Paul isn't teaching this as a conditional posture Christians are to have toward governing authorities, you know, so long as they're worthy of my respect and my submission. He's teaching a perpetual posture. 
which means that Christians are, are compelled not only to be submissive, right? Um, but, but it's got to mean also uncritical, right? Unquestioning of all authority no matter what. Okay, not so fast. <laughs> What's clear in this passage is the principle, and this runs through the entire passage. In some places it's stated explicitly, but it's, it's, it's the lifeblood of the whole thing which is to say there is, in fact, only one absolute authority to whom everyone must submit. And it's not the government, it's the living God. You see that in verse 7 where Paul talks about giving what is owed, to whom it is owed, whether that be taxes or revenue or respect or honor. Right? And, and when Paul talks about that, he is linking up with a particular episode in Jesus' own ministry. Uh, this, this, as he speaks about that, it is resonant with echoes of a time when, Jesus, when, when some people attempted to trap Jesus with a hot political, you know, a hot take um, on paying taxes. And uh, someone comes up to him and, and asks him, you know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the trap is this. If he says yes, then, you know, he is uh, a traitor to his people. If he says no, then he's a traitor to Rome. It's the catch-22 of Matthew 22. What are you supposed to do? But Jesus doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. Jesus says instead, you know, somebody give me a denarius. Anybody got a denarius? Um, you know, this is the coin you pay your taxes with. And then he asks him a question, you know, with this coin in hand. He says, whose, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? And everybody, you know, it's the Roman Empire, and everyone's like, duh, Caesar. And then Jesus says, right you are. Now, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. You've got a coin stamped with the image of Caesar with his inscription on it. Give it to him. It's owed to him. But when he says, render unto God the things that are God, the immediate, the immediate implication for anyone who knew the most basic truth of the Bible is this. God has stamped his image on something as well. He's put his inscription on something as well. And you know what it is? It's on you. Then render unto him what? All of you. Your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul. Your taxes belong to Caesar, but you belong to God. And that means that unlike the Lord, Caesar's authority, governmental authority, has its boundaries. It has its limits. Now, that notion, that statement, that concept was utterly radical and unknown in a world where there was virtually no distinction between civic authority and divine authority. The emperor was understood unquestionably not only to hold governmental power, but the power of the gods. And that teaching of Jesus was, was in the very DNA of the early church, and Paul reinforces it here. Notice how in verse 3 and 4, Paul says that rulers aren't a terror to good conduct because the government is appointed as what? God's servant for your good, which means that the government, governing authorities bear some responsibilities themselves. Um, they are responsible to operate under God's, under God's moral order. They are not free to do whatever they want. They're not at liberty to act in disobedience to God's will. So, you know, what Paul 
explains here, comes out explicitly, for example, in Acts 5, when Peter is told by the Jewish authorities who are in charge of him, you know, religiously, stop preaching the gospel. No more of that. And Peter says, you know, in no uncertain terms, I'm sorry, I can't do that. We must obey God instead of men. He, he, he was compelled to disobey the authorities in order to obey Jesus' command to preach the gospel. So there's, not a, there's a biblical basis for civil disobedience. In fact, I would make the argument that our very concept of civil disobedience is rooted in the gospel itself. When the government either forbids what God commands or when the government commands what God forbids. So, you know, what that means is that the Christian takes on a unique, radical posture in this relationship with governmental authorities. So that on the one hand, you know, even if a government is ungodly, even if, it, even if it's foolish, if it supports beliefs and behaviors that I know are contrary to biblical truth, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm free to undermine its authority willy-nilly. You know, again, Paul is telling the church in Rome to submit to the authorities, even though it is all those things. And again, you know, there's prominent examples from the Bible. You have someone like Joseph who served Israel's, you know, ancient enemy, Egypt, in its administration faithfully. You have someone like Jeremiah who counseled the southern kingdom of Judah to surrender to the, Babylons, to, to the Babylonians who would soon take them into exile. On the other hand, there's prominent examples of disobedience. You know, when, when, when God's people were being demanded to, were, were being put in the position of having to disobey God. So a great example is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were called to serve the Babylonian state, were trained for civic service, which they did submissively, which they, um, you know, did obediently until they found themselves in a situation where they were commanded to do what God forbids in worshiping an idol, and when they were forbidden, forbidden to do what God commands in praying to their God. In both cases, they refused to submit to the state, even as they trusted God and as they were willing to take whatever punishment came their way for the disobedience out of respect to the governing authority. So Christians are in relationship with and have a responsibility to the state, but it works the other way as well. The state has a relationship with and responsibilities towards its citizens. So what are those responsibilities? We've referred to some of them already. The state bears the power of the sword, not for nothing, for he's God's servant to bring punishment. Uh, the state is, is tasked with restraining evil. Uh, and within that, there's another responsibility. Verse 4 says that the authorities are to carry this out. Our translation says, for your good, but the original Greek actually applies the definite article there, and it's, it's to carry these responsibilities out for the good. That is to say, for the broader social good. The language here implies that the government is responsible for affecting good, not merely in protecting your personal rights, you know, but in promulgating the good. Not only through punishing crime, but in the promotion of of social welfare, and I think that includes a whole host of things, right? In seeking to promote economic justice for the poor, in, in seeking common prosperity and in the physical welfare, not just of individuals, but of whole communities. 
relationships are a two-way street, right? So the, this role and responsibility of the state shapes the Christian's role and responsibility to the state. This means that Christians contribute to the common good by taking a positive role in civic life. But Paul actually talks about that in terms of what we owe our communities. Uh, it means that the responsibility to pay taxes to provide revenue to the governing authorities is done with the understanding that those funds are given to enable them to do their job that God has given them to do. And that connects with, the, with uh, verses 8 and 10, which at first glance, you know, look like Paul is all of a sudden done with, the, you know, the civic responsibility, and now he's on to, you know, your personal devotions. Um, you know, to make sure that we're loving our neighbor, to maintain some personal integrity in, in following the Lord. But when you sort of step back and look at where Paul has been going since chapter 12, you have to see that he's connecting the love of enemies at the end of chapter 12 to our relationship with the governing authorities here, now to love of neighbor. All of it of a piece. So how, is it, how does it all fit together? Well, it seems that when Paul talks about the overcoming of evil with good relationally at the end of 12, he's connecting that here so that it finds expression individually and locally playing out not only in your individual personal relationships, but in your community relations. If we have responsibility towards neighbors, we have responsibility toward a neighborhood, right? Compassion and generosity toward them, desire for their good, willingness to bear and share the cost of their troubles out of obedience to the Lord, Lord, out of a desire for the good. Working to the good, not just of individuals that we like, but to the entire community. So when Paul tells Christians to pay everyone what you owe, with specific reference to taxes in verse 7, he continues and connects that in verse 8, not to change the subject, but to charge it with the deeper implications of paying out what is owed, not just to the tax office, but to the entire community with what he says is our love. We, we, we live with a, a love debt that we're called to pay. You, you see this kind of take really vivid expression in a wild way in, Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah in a letter he wrote to the exiles in Babylon in which he urges them to do this very thing, to overcome evil with good as God's people, calling them to pursue the peace and prosperity of their city. Now, at the time he wrote it, it's pretty clear they had formed a little fortress of the faithful. They, they wanted nothing to, to do with the life and culture of Babylon. Um, and you kind of look at that and you go, well, who could blame them? You know, they've been conquered. They've been carried off into exile. They are living in and amongst a, a, a people um, whose values and culture and entire way of doing things is, is at odds with and, frankly, hostile to their faith and their identity. And, and just to be clear, Jeremiah's under no illusions about Babylon, okay? I mean, there are other places in the book where he tells Babylon that there will be judgment for them if they don't repent. And he, and he continually tells God's people not to participate in their wickedness, but, but he says at the same time, be a part of the life of the city and seeking its prosperity and its peace. He, he lays out their calling to be both uncompromising in their faith and in their convictions as God's people, while at the same time really uninhibited in positively participating in the life of the city to which God has taken them. 
So he calls them to build houses and settle down and invest in the community and marry and grow and, and, and have children and grow in number. Keeping your identity as God's people while connecting to the life of the community to seek its peace, to seek its shalom, its well-being, its thriving. So like Paul, Jeremiah is saying to, the, to God's people what God has just said in chapter 12, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, you know, just as you wouldn't let your taxes go unpaid from the earnings you've received, don't let the love of your community go unpaid because of the grace you've received. There's a love debt. And again, Paul, um, maybe annoyingly, is sweeping in his application of this. He's not selective. Um, we're, we're called to not only love friends, but enemies. You know, not only the person who's got, you know, the right stickers on their bumpers, according to our opinion, you know, or the right color on their hat, or, you know, the right sign in their yard, but everybody. And again, I mean, this is a demanding passage. I hope you're asking, you know, how in the world is that possible? How can I do that? Well, in verse 9, I think he begins to explain how it's possible. Uh, it's, this, is the, this is where he begins to quote God's commandments. It's a curious thing, isn't it, that he would go there and say, actually, this is the key. And at first you might think, well, this is kind of obvious, the obvious stuff of being a good citizen, um, not doing the murdering, not doing the stealing. Um, that's good for the community. But right in there, right alongside the not murdering and the not stealing is our other parts of the law that we might tell ourselves, you know, is kind of my personal business. You know, stuff that can't hurt anybody other than me because it's confined to my house. You know, or it's confined to my heart. You know, like, what is, what is adultery or, or, or what I, whatever I do sexually? Or what is covetousness? You know, and whatever goes on in my sort of private desires, what does any of that have to do with the common good? How is it that Paul can lump together the command about coveting with the one about killing as central to what it looks like to love the community to which God has called us? Well, I think he does this because he, know, he wants us to know a deep and powerful truth, and that is that we love others best when we love the Lord the most. We love others best when we love the Lord the most. The, the best way to seek the interest of your neighbors is first to seek the interests of the Lord. The best way to love and serve this city is to love and serve the sovereign God. Uh, seeking first his kingdom so that what? All these things will be added unto you. So Paul reminds us that God's laws aren't, you know, random rules, but that there is in fact a great and glorious undergirding rationale to it all, which he states in part in verse 9. The part he doesn't state is that the law was given that we might love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is implied. But the part he puts forward and emphasizes is that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the purpose of the law. Can you imagine a community in which there is no distinction between looking out for number one and looking out for the best interests of others? No distinction. You know, how would that affect how you drive? To say nothing of how you live. Paul says that loving our neighbors, in fact, is fulfilling the law. 
so that if we want to love others, we find that God's commands aren't burdensome obstacles, but by grace become these beautiful openings into a life given away for the glory of God and the good of our community. Now, all this requires faith. It requires trust that the Lord knows what we, what our neighbors, and what our communities need better than we do. Because He made us, because He made the world we live in, He knows what makes for its thriving, He knows what makes it fruitful, He knows what makes it beautiful, He knows what makes it blessed. You know, I was talking with my wife the other day, and we were just talking about all the places we've lived in our married life, and I was like, man, we're kind of vagabonds, you know? Um, and, and that was not really the plan. It's just how God has done it. Um, but in the course of those 25 years, you know, we've lived and ministered in the bluest of the blue states and the reddest of the red states. Um, and, and, and people have often, you know, sort of heard that story and gone, wow, you know, that's so disorienting. I bet you're, you know, some, I mean, some people are like, I bet you're glad to get out of that place and to this place. Or I bet you're glad to, you know, I'm so sorry you have to leave this place to go to that place, right? But, but here's what I've found. Um, there's a lot to say about that, this. You can, you can buy me lunch sometime. But, you know, in, a, in, in the most important respect, they're exactly the same. If you took a person off the street, you know, the People's Republic of Cambridge, where I was once a pastor, Cambridge, Massachusetts, or if you took a person off the street, you know, of the, of the red state republic of Texas, small town Texas, and, and you were to, to ask them, you know, give me your version of the good life. You know, how do we get there? You know, they would, in either place, give you something approximating their vision of the kingdom where they would say that the way we get there boils down to building it ourselves. You know, it boils down to electing the right politicians and ejecting the rotten ones, pulling the right levers, putting the, you know, the correct policy bricks in our American Tower of Babel, and all will be well, right? A friend of mine once shared with me that if he were writing a history of the world, he would entitle that book, It Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. <laughs> because we continue to go back to the same old broken cisterns, right, of self-interest, of self-wisdom, of imagining that we are a people who make ourselves and build ourselves and build our own kingdoms. But when we remember and when we relish and rely on the good news that we have been loved in Christ, when we seek to follow His law, not as some legalistic grind we've got to earn favor with, but out of the gratitude for the grace that's been given when we love the Lord and His law, we can love our neighbors. Not as those who confine themselves to the Christian ghetto or out of fear that we'll be sullied by a sinful society, but neither as those who are co-opted by the culture so that we let go of biblical gospel conviction or lose the distinctiveness of our witness. Because we know that it's not loving to compromise God's goodwill but that we love best when we are loving Him best. So the question is, you know, what if we actually took all this seriously? What if we identified, you know, not by the color of our, of our favorite political party or by, you know, the next person fashioning themselves as, as the Savior, but as Christians who are humbled and emboldened by grace, 
with an outlook in which we look at ourselves and others in view of God's mercy? What if instead of our asserting our rights, we became known for an eagerness to give them up for the good of others? What if being, instead of being consumed with our own lives, we lived out of a concern for the well-being of others? You know, what if we had as much concern with cultivating responsibility as we do with exercising our freedom? What if instead of pursuing our happiness, we pursued the happiness of others? Paul concludes not with a call to Christian duty, but with a reminder of the day we're living in. He says to the church, you know the time. You know that the hour has come for you. In saying that, he's calling God's people not to lose sight of the bigger story, to get off the news cycle and think about what God is doing in history, in his kingdom, to really be awake to the fact that King Jesus has come and he's brought with him a kingdom. Remembering that it is continuing to advance, that nothing can hold it back, that it is breaking forth and will come fully when he has returned. You know, Paul is saying that Christians aren't dual citizens. You know, as if we belong to one, more than one king and more than one kingdom. But instead, we are kingdom citizens. Ambassadors for Christ, called to live in faithful service to him, loving the people and the place to which he's called us more deeply because we see it in view of God's mercy to us. Because that's who we are, it's how we are to live. And Paul ends up, Paul concludes explaining this with this odd metaphor of light and dark, um, day and night. You know, I recently was up in New Hampshire at a retreat, and, and I, I got to this place in kind of rural New Hampshire on a lake, you know, in the middle of the night, and it was creepy. You know, I saw Get Out. I know what happens in these, <laughs> these places. Um, but then the next day I woke up on a beautiful morning. And even though I had been there, I saw it with new eyes. I saw it as it actually really is. Like I was seeing it for the first time. That, Paul wants us to know, is how Christians are to apprehend the world in which we live knowing that the night is far gone, the day is at hand. He's still talking about seeing things with a view to God's mercy. You know, you can't see things in the dark as they really are. Shadows look substantial. Substantial things look shadowy. It's hard to tell what's what, but the illuminating vision of the gospel enables us to see what's what, what's real. We're given new eyes to apprehend the real substance of things, the truth of things, that it is God's kingdom in which we live. So that the people we live among and the place we live in looks different at once, so beautiful that we realize people are owed our love and our honor, our dedication, our service, our lives, that this place is owed our service and our stewardship and our taxes. While at the same time, we see a brokenness that hurts and breaks our hearts, that gains our sympathy, that taps into a sense of solidarity, that I know what it's like to not know the Lord, so that we lament and long for better things, for the gospel to grow, and for King Jesus' kingdom to advance to the good of everyone. Not only do people look different, not only does the place look different, Paul wants us to know that power looks different. 
I don't know if you know much about the great church father, Polycarp. Um, his name actually means much fruit. Um, he, he was a second century bishop of Smyrna. He was a protege of the Apostle John. He was a great influence on these pillar church fathers, Irenaeus and Tertullian. He ministered faithfully well into his 80s until the Roman authorities showed up to arrest him for preaching the gospel. And he was taken before the Roman authority. They gave him a chance to recant, to bend the knee to, the, to their power. And Polycarp said this. He said, 80 and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so he was arrested, he was bound, he was stabbed with a spear for the offense of refusing to burn incense to the emperor, and then they burned him at the stake. An account was given of his death, and it was recorded in this way. It sounds very procedural at first. Polycarp was arrested by Herod when Philip of Tralles was high priest during the proconsulship of Stadius Quadratus. But while Jesus Christ was reigning as king forever... Jesus is still reigning as king forever. And that changes everything for us in the here and now. It changes our relationship to this place. It changes our relationship to its people. And it changes our relationship with whatever power is currently in place in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, it's breathtaking to consider that you are reigning on the throne forever. You have called us as your people to be citizens of your kingdom. For some of us, that will mean days of peace and prosperity. And we know, Lord, that for many of your people, it has meant days of affliction and suffering. But Lord, in it all, would you give us a clarity of vision that we would not look at the world obscured through the lens of you know, our flesh and the powers of this world and those things that threaten, but would we see everything in view of your mercy in the light of the gospel, that we would know that yours is an eternal kingdom and that as we live in this whisper, this breath of a life, that we would live it, Lord, before you, to your honor and your glory, which redounds to the good of Santa Fe and indeed the world. Lord, give us the grace to do that. Increase our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.